Please be seated. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll look at, I'm going to read verses 17 through 34. We'll do a little bit of a, a flyover of these passages. This is all set in the context of worship. Uh, this is a four-part series that we're doing in the month of January. The 2024, our, our yearly theme this year is a year of worship. We have an annual theme each year. You may or may not know that. Last year, was we stepped out of our normal three-part uh, community outreach worship just to look at the vision of Westminster Presbyterian Church. That was what 2023 was about, although you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. But this is a year where we focus intently on worship, and more specifically to this series that we're entering into, why do we worship the way we do? <laughs> why do we include the elements we do? Why do we have this liturgy that we follow? We'll, we'll look at that a lot in two Sundays. But this morning, we're, we're kind of starting in the middle. Uh, the introduction to my sermon is, is going to be more of an introduction to the whole series rather than just about communion, which we'll celebrate and which the sermon is about. Why do, what do we think is happening here? What do we think is the benefit of the Lord's table? That's, that's really where we're going with this. Is this morning is worship as communion. Next Sunday, worship as commendation or praise and adoration to God. Psalm 8 is what we'll look at. Then worship as corporate gathering on the third Sunday, and then worship as corporate sending. So it's something that we do corporately together, but it's meant to send us out into the world to worship with our lives, to worship with our evangelism, and more. So that's what's coming. And then in February, we'll get back into our study of the Sermon on the Mount. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. <clears throat> but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Paul says. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the bread after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would teach us now. Lord, as we look forward to coming to the Lord's table, would you fill us again with your grace? Would you help us to understand this wonderful meal you have given us, and that we would eagerly anticipate a greater meal that you will commune and share with us one day? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've mentioned part of this story to you before, but I want to elaborate on it. Martin Luther triumphantly returned to Wittenberg in the March of 1522. He'd nailed the theses on the door. He had his Hollywood moment, if you will, the Diet of Worms, where he was commanded to recant of everything that he had taught and written, and where he's, I hear I stand, I can do no other. <laughs> Unless I'm convinced by the Scriptures to beliefs and right of something else, I won't do it. Here I stand. And so he is sequestered in the little German town of Eisenach for about 10 months. In fact, he's up in a castle at the very top of it, the, the Wartburg Castle. That's where he begins to write and correspond with many, kind of fleshing out his Reformation ideas. And while he's gone, two men overtake the leadership of the Wittenberg churches, a man named Andreas Karlstadt and a man named Philip Melanchthon, friends of Martin Luther. They shared all of the same convictions that Luther had, and yet the way they chose to lead was drastically different. They began to make all these tremendous changes immediately, having no care and concern for the difficulty that it was going to be experienced by the people there all the liturgical changes and all the changes to the Lord's Supper and more. It, it troubled the people. And rather than leading them through it, they just did it. <laughs> and so Luther receives word that everything is falling apart in Wittenberg, and indeed it was falling apart. And so on March the 3rd of 1522, Luther comes back to Wittenberg to reestablish himself as the leader of the Reformation there and to preach his eight most famous sermons he would ever preach in his life what we call the Invocavit Sermons. It's where he begins to lay out for the people of Wittenberg exactly what the Reformation meant for them. It, took, it went from idea world and books written and, and disputations and, and debates to how does this land on the people. And for us, the changes that were made in the course of about five or six years make complete sense to us, and yet they were very radical for the people at that time. If you walk into the back of a Catholic church today and your eye goes forward to the front of the sanctuary there, what, does your eye, what is your eye drawn to? It's drawn to the altar, isn't it? Because in the mind of a Catholic person, that's the most important thing that's going to happen that morning, the Mass, the partaking of the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. When you walk into the back of the sanctuary this morning here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, what was your eye drawn to? And don't say the stained glass window, okay? That's the wrong answer. What was your eye drawn to? It was drawn to the pulpit. Everything is centered around this. That's no comment about me. It's a comment about what's going to happen here. You see, the most important thing is the preached Word, and everything that we do in this worship service finds its direction from the Word of God, from the preaching, from the sacraments, from the singing, and everything else. It's, it's about God's Word unto us. What else was changed? When I administer the Lord's Supper at the end of this service, I'm not going to stand in front of the table. I'm going to stand behind it, and that's by design. I'm, I'm communicating something theologically to you. You do not need a human priest or intercessor so that you can come and partake. 
I'm going to stand behind the table and invite you to come and partake yourself, you to come by faith. You see, the people in Wittenberg, that's revolutionary to them. Something that's so obvious to us was not obvious to them. Did you know a believer in 1522 in German had never once, not one time in their life ever, heard a worship service in the language that they could understand? They didn't know Latin. And so everything that they said, they needed a priest to intercede and to do it for them, this ritual. They didn't hear it and understand it and appreciate it in their language. They had never once in their life received the cup. They'd only received the bread because the priest didn't want to have to sit, take a sip of the juice after the rabble out there. They didn't. They had never heard a sermon about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life and justification by faith, and it was just something that was ritualistic. Again, it's things that we take for granted, but something that they most certainly would not have. What is the one main thing that we all point to to, 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 to sense the depth of our relationship with the Lord? It's a quiet time. How, how do you, what's your quiet time like? How do you spend time with the Lord? No one for about the first 1,600 years in the church knew what a quiet time was. They didn't have the Bible in their language. They didn't have it something that they could read for themselves. They trusted someone else to tell them what the Scripture said. And many more things that we could mention. And into this, Luther comes and begins to explain what the Reformation means for the people. This is central, not that. The bread, is, the bread and the cup is now going to come to you. The preached word is going to tell you how to live and find joy in Christ. It's the priesthood of all believers. You can come to him by faith. You don't need someone to intercede in that way. Of course, you need Christ to intercede. No, today is not an announcement of some reformation of worship at Westminster. And yet, like Luther, I do think it's appropriate for us to discuss and explain with clarity, I hope, all the reasons that we do what we do, the reasons we choose the songs that we sing, the reason that we have the different order of liturgy that we have. We have a reason for that. We didn't just come up with it flippantly. There's a lot of effort and a lot of time that goes into thinking through themes and the connectedness of everything. And so today we begin with the Lord's Supper. Why do we practice it in the way that we do? Why do we use the words that we do? What do we think is the significance here? Is there a benefit past just being reminded of what Christ has done? Yes, we believe that there is. So two ways I want us to look at this very lengthy and meaty passage. The first is to prepare, partake, and proclaim. That's the first part of this. We come to the Lord's table having prepared ourselves. When we partake of the body and blood of Christ, symbolically in the bread and the juice here, what are we partaking of? What is the, are we ingesting benefit? And then it says we are to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What are we proclaiming exactly? Well, a few contextual points before we get into that. Paul, once again, is fussing at the Corinthians. He's done a lot of that in the first 11 chapters of this book. He's had a lot to fuss at them for. He said, I, I, I know you say that you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, but you're not. <laughs> because what you're doing is in no way what this meal was meant to represent and the benefit that it was supposed to be for you, it is, that's not present when you come together. Some people are eating a lot, and some people aren't getting anything. Some people are drinking to the point where they're drunk. 
The meal, which is meant to get away with the divisions amongst you, is actually emphasizing the divisions amongst you. The meal that's meant to to highlight the accomplishments of Christ are actually highlighting the accomplishments of you. The rich are getting all that they want. The poor are going without. That happens everywhere. It's not supposed to happen at the Lord's table, is it? The dinner, yes, it's something a bit different than we. It's hard to call this a, a dinner, isn't it? And yet, it is a meal that they shared together, and then they partook of the Lord's Supper together. And it was not a place of unity. It was not a place of a shared proclamation of what Christ had done. It was a place where the divisions in the church were seen more and more. You know, something happens around a dinner table, doesn't it? And it's meant to. It's where community is created and sustained. It's where you extend or receive hospitality from someone else. Meals carry value. Around a dinner table, whether it's your family or it's friends that you have invited over, stuff happens there that doesn't happen anywhere else. You let your guard down a little bit, don't you? You share stories with one another. You get to know people. You start kind of really acting like yourself. <laughs> there's a story behind the meal that was prepared. There's a story behind the recipe that was used. There's, there's something very intimate about this. There's something about all the differences that you may have with that person or that family. Those don't matter anymore. You enjoy their company and their presence. And the Lord's Supper was meant to do the exact same. And it wasn't happening in Corinth. You see, when we come to this meal, as we will in a minute, we are sharing something together. We are sharing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And while we may have differences elsewhere, and we do, even in a church like this, we do have differences, don't we? We look different. We think differently. We come from different backgrounds, and we have different jobs, and we have different socioeconomic classifications. In our church in particular, we have a lot of different theological backgrounds, don't we? That's a great thing. We've come together, and at this table, those don't matter. We have a lot of differences. We have theological differences. We even have political differences in this room. We have economic differences. We have different and very strong opinions about where you ought to send your children to school. We have liturgical differences, what, what songs we like to sing. But when we come here to this table, those don't matter. They don't matter. When you come into the back of the sanctuary, you put those other allegiances down for the next hour and roughly 15 minutes, and you concentrate on what binds us. We are one in Jesus Christ, and the meal of all things is to highlight that. We come into this room, you are brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in the faith, and that is something to celebrate. That's something to get excited about. It's, this isn't just an acquaintance that's sitting on the row with me. This is a family member someone who shares Christ just as I do. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge to us in a society where we just don't want to do that. It was a challenge in Corinth. It's a challenge in Johnson City. We need to be reminded that we need this. And so does everybody else sitting around us. So what do we do when we come to the Lord's table? Well, the first thing you do is you, I trust, you prepare yourself. We try, though we don't always remember, sorry, to remind you one week in advance that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, 
you can be helped by the fact, I hope, I trust that you've seen this rhythm, the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That you prepare yourselves, not just to come to the Lord's table, but for any worship service that you're a part of. Have you made yourself ready? Maybe that's something that you do on Saturday night. Maybe that's something that you rise early and you do on Sunday morning. Lord, help me to be ready to receive the nourishment of your word and of the food of this meal. It's not something that you have to take a terribly long time to do, but have you put any thought into being here this morning and the preparation it requires? And then the next step is that you partake. You partake of the bread and you partake of the juice. And as you consume it, it gives you sustenance. It is grace and nourishment from Christ, as the Westminster Confession says. It, it's more than just, I needed a reminder. You did, but it's more than that. You know, there's a passage in John chapter 6 that has troubled the church for 2,000 years. What does Jesus mean in John 6? That anyone, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, otherwise you have no part of me. Well, that's tough to deal with, isn't it? That sounds very Roman Catholic, doesn't it? And yet we believe that Jesus is exactly right, of course, when he says this, but what does he mean? We are ingesting him spiritually by faith. We, we are receiving Christ in these elements, literally receiving spiritual nourishment from his body and blood. We're not Roman Catholic. We do not believe that this is truly him here in, phys in the physical body, but there is spiritual nourishment. It's what we call spiritual communion, or the technical term, the technical theological term, is the Reformed real presence view of the Lord's Supper. It means basically this. There is not objective benefit at the table. Roman Catholics will tell you that it does not matter what you believe. When you ingest the, the, the bread and the cup, you are receiving the grace. No, you are not. There's not it's not objective ritual. It is subjective if you come by faith. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 11. It, the reminder is a benefit, but even the partaking by faith is a benefit. You are being strengthened in Him. Do this in remembrance of me, yes, and receive something here that you can't receive anywhere else. The Lord's Supper is a declaration from God that I love you. I care for you. You need this. Just as you spouses, you express to your spouse, you tell them that you love them, but you also show them that you love them. You do things for them. You hug them. You kiss them, right? That Imagine going a long time without doing any physical expression of your love. They would begin to doubt your words, would they not? The Lord's Supper is a, I can touch it. I can taste it. It's a tangible reminder that I am loved by my Heavenly Father through Christ. This was done for me. I hear it all the time, I trust, don't you, from the reading God's Word, from hearing it preached, and now in a different way, you get to see it and you get to experience it. This is His love for us. And as we partake, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. You individually are proclaiming this as you partake, and we collectively are proclaiming this as we partake. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, it says. Every time we partake of this bread and this cup at the Lord's table, we are preaching something to each other, to our own hearts and to one another. There's there's unity that is being developed amongst us. Now, you may think to yourself, well, pastor, that sounds wonderful, but how are we really doing that in about a 10 or 15-minute moment, right, in the course of one service once a month? Well, let me encourage you to do something this morning. to, to highlight this unity and this proclamation, that when you receive the elements in just a few minutes, you would hold them in your hand, and then you would look around at those worshiping around you, and that you would be encouraged. That just as God has come into your life and given you His grace, He's done the same thing to the people worshiping around you. They are not worthy to partake. They have been cleansed by Christ just as you have. And they are proclaiming the Lord's death in their partaking just as you are. And that it would remind, we are a family partaking of a meal together this morning. And be encouraged by that. And listen to the proclamation that the people on your row are giving just as you are. They are meaning to encourage you. We can do this. He's coming soon. Trust Him. Continue on, Christian. Persevere. Secondly, we have examine, expect, enjoy. We proclaimed all that Christ has done, and now Paul gives us a bit of a warning here, doesn't he? But first, let me go in and explain to you why we do everything we do here at this table. In just a minute, I'm going to close the sermon in prayer, and then I'm going to begin our service at the Lord's table by reading for you the words of institution. Now, that comes from one of four passages. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. John does not, so we don't include John. Or the passage from 1 Corinthians 11 that I just read. So I read to you the words of institution, and then I go into a brief explanation of the Lord's Supper. I do this in a variety of ways. I can't every time explain all of it, so I explain a part of it. Sacrament is a sign and seal of Christ. It's meant to encourage and strengthen our faith. Or maybe I'll tie it into the sermon somehow. I choose one of a variety of ways to explain it. And then what I do next is the most controversial thing we do in the PCA. And what I hear from some of you discourages you sometimes. And I want to explain why we do it. What I do next is what's called fencing the table. And I do fencing the table, one, because I'm required by the Book of Church Order to do so. But mainly because of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, I use language such as this. This is not the table of Westminster Presbyterian Church. This is not the table of the PCA. In other words, you don't have to be a member of our church to come and partake or the member of the PCA and partake. This is for anyone who has placed their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I add this, that if if you have never done that before, or if you are, a, or not a, if you're a member in, a, in good standing of a Bible-believing church, is the language that we use. A member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. That's the requirement. Why do we say that? Because some people come up and, and will say to us, well, the Bible doesn't say you have to be a church member. I actually believe it does say that you have to be a church member. We'll talk about that in a couple of Sundays. A member in good standing, it means you're not under church discipline either by this church or another. 
of a Bible-believing church. That's an intentionally broad statement there, okay? A member in good standing implies two things, that you have given a profession of faith and that some church authority somewhere has heard that and they've deemed it credible. Yes, the only requirement to partake is faith and repentance and knowing that I need this. That's true. But we believe, as your pastors and your elders, that someone needs to have heard that. Someone needs to have deemed that credible. And the reason is because of the warning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that there is a way for us to partake in an unworthy manner unto condemnation and to harm upon ourselves. And we don't want that to be true of anyone. And so we want to, someone have heard that profession of faith and said, yes, good to go. So that's why we say it in the way that we do. One, we're instructed by the PCA to do it, but also we want to heed correctly this warning. So the unworthiness, it's not the unworthiness of the person. Of course we're unworthy. The unworthiness is relative to the partaking. You see that? It's the manner in which it's partaken, not the heart or status or state of the person that does partake. Of course we're not worthy. Of course we're not perfect. To know that is to be fit for the table. To know that you need His grace and need the reminder and you need Christ once again. Yes, now you are ready. The examination and the worthy partaking lead us to what we call fence the table. After that, I pray over the elements. Lord, would you take these common elements, would you set them aside for a holy and special purpose for us this morning, is essentially what I say. I invite the elders to come forward. When I do that, I break the bread. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Okay. The elders then distribute to you the elements. You pass it down your row, and then we all hold and partake together. Why do we do that? Because that's the instruction Paul gives here. Because what was, what was wrong that was happening? People were eating uh, before the others. Others weren't getting. No, let's wait Everyone has been served, and let's partake together. Let's proclaim together what Christ has done for us. And then we close in prayer. It's meant to highlight, and we probably in the PCA highlight the one more than the other. There is solemnity. There is sobriety here at the table. There is warning we must heed. And we're right to highlight that. We want to partake of this in a worthy manner. We want to be able to discern the body, which just means understand what we're doing, essentially. Understand that this is the benefit from Christ's body and blood unto us. It's a personal grace to us. We are afflicted, we are downtrodden, we are saddened by the continued sin, and we are strengthened in this meal. And so Paul calls us to examine ourselves. Not to find ourselves perfect, you won't, but to find ourselves needy. And that really is the qualification. I need Christ and I trust Him. I am helpless. I am bankrupt. I am a sinner. And He has within Himself everything that I need. He nourishes us in this meal, Westminster. It is more than just remembering. You get something in these elements once prayed for. There's something here that you can't get anywhere else. This is a grace to us. And so, if there, if there is, if it really is of such importance, why, how 
could I come flippantly and without thought to this meal? Of course I would prepare myself. And, and if that's true, then that really ought to also be true of any worship service that I come into. Am I ready to receive? Am I ready to worship this King of kings and Lord of lords that we are going to really highlight in this service? I trust we do all the time. We come with reverence and awe and expectation, which leads us to the second thing that we don't often highlight in the PCA, the joy and celebration of this table. We like to talk about, don't we, the sobriety of things and the seriousness of things, which we should, but there's joy and celebration and anticipation at this meal. There's a consciousness that this isn't all of it. This is pointing to something. This is helping us anticipate eagerly something. The marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. When we don't get to just celebrate with Christ spiritually, we will commune with Him spiritually in just a moment. One day, we will sit at a table where He will be physically, and He will feed us by His grace, and we will never go hungry, and we will never be saddened. That is what we anticipate and look forward to. This is a meal that is a promise, and we know, as we just looked in our Advent series, that God always keeps His promises. Many, many pastors have, rely, have likened the Lord's Supper celebration to a rehearsal dinner, and that's a very appropriate illustration. We're rehearsing something here. It's of benefit to us, but it's just making us look forward to the main event, if you will. You enjoyed the rehearsal and the rehearsal dinner at your wedding, no doubt, but you were really excited about the wedding, about the next day, about when you know, what you really, everybody had come that weekend to celebrate was the wedding. This, as wonderful a benefit it is to us, it ought to make us long for Christ's return. Lord, come quickly. Let us experience this in its fullness. We only know right now, we only see in a mirror dimly. One day we'll see face-to-face with complete clarity, and this makes us hope for that. It makes us excited about that, at least it should. And so we don't take these elements without thinking. It isn't just another ritual for us. There's a grace here that we need. You know, Westminster, I, I know that the meal can, be, can seem like an oddity to us. Sometimes we just don't know what to do with the meal. We don't know what to do with the Lord's Supper. We aren't exactly sure what its benefit is. And so that's why just the memorial view seems to fit best with us. We're just remembering something. It's more. I hope you see that. The time that Paul gives to it shows us this. The the implication of the spiritual nourishment, it implies that to us. There's more here. We receive something again that we can't receive anywhere else. We receive Christ. Your faith is strengthened. Your hope in the life to come is made stronger. And your grip on this world is loosened, and Christ is exalted in you once again. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time in your work. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources, forward slash sermon, hyphen, archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication 
may be available to the public by a Creative Commons license. The SV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.